chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. Last night, uh, we good, Judah? Last night, um, Allie texted, Allie was texting me, and I'm sure uh, you are also concerned at what we see going on in the world. The, uh, it doesn't matter if you're white or black or Republican or Democrat or, I mean, there's just a lot of discouraging um, and troubling things we see. Just the hatred that people tend to have for each other. I'm going to take this off because I'm going to be really hot in just a minute. The hatred and, and violence and lack of peace. And this is all uh, understandable because we're living in a world where people have rejected the message of God's word. So Allie asked me, she said, Dad, are you going uh, to um, mention even this tomorrow in the message? Are you going to like speak to this issue? Because a lot of times when things happen in the world, pastors are called, well, you've got to speak to this issue, speak to this issue. And, and uh, as I was talking to her, here's what I ended up saying, and I thought, well, maybe it would be a good thing to say to you. Because the message today will relate a little bit to what we're talking about. Uh, in our world with Jeremiah and the, and the nation of Judah being, um, being promised destruction because of their lack of obedience to God. So she says, Dad, are you going to address this tomorrow? And I said, probably. This is what I, I just wrote. I'll read what I wrote her. Probably, but I think it's dangerous to wrap up in issues to neglect the word. I'm going to preach the message and make application to the situation, but I will not become hostage to world events. Otherwise, we'll just constantly preach to the world events. My message tomorrow is that, and this is a start for you, my message tomorrow is that God will keep his promises and the danger we put ourselves in when we neglect his word. It will be pretty easy to make application from that to the events of this world. What would you want me to say? A message on trust or the sovereignty of God? Remember, Jesus lived in a world of Roman domination and injustice towards the Jews, but he proclaimed his kingdom, saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I would fight. So let's fight for the next kingdom and share the gospel with family and friends as live as salt and light in a dark world. That seems pretty simple, doesn't it? It's a long text. It's very easy to worry and fret as if this is something new. This is just a variation of the age-old activity of a nation that has turned its back on God. The message for Christians in today's day is to set our hope on the coming deliverer. And until he comes, to advance his kingdom where we are and as we can. Then I say, I'm sorry, honey, that became more preachy than I wanted it to. But that is what I intended to share with you. And we'll make application throughout, but isn't that the case? I mean, when a world turns its back on God, this is what we see. So let's think about this in our message today. This is uh, the follow-up from last week, and actually I said that it was going to be a, a two-week uh, introduction to the book of Ezra, and now all of a sudden it's going to be three weeks, okay? Because there's so much information. We're not even getting to Ezra yet, even today or next week. Now I'd mentioned just again at, in my text to Allie that this is the main theme of the message today, and if this doesn't give you encouragement when you turn on the news, which maybe you should stop watching the news, uh, is that God always keeps his word, right? Can you say amen to that? God always keeps his word. If God says that he is going to do something, then we can count on that being fulfilled, now, sometimes we don't want that fulfilled. When God promises blessing, you know, uh, for instance, he tells Jeremiah, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you don't know. Oh, okay, we want, we want that promise. But then when God promises something like destruction or curse, we don't want that. Look at, Lament you don't have to look, I have it right here. Lamentations 2.17, this is written by Jeremiah as a result of looking at what God was doing to the nation for their rebellion. Here's what he said. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word. That's our theme, right? God has done what he said that he commanded long ago. But here's what he brought on you. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and has exalted the might of your foes. So what Jeremiah is saying in Lamentations to the people who are distressed and, and destroyed is that you should not be surprised at that because, why don't you say the top with me, God always keeps his word. You shouldn't be surprised at that because God is going to do what he said. Now, typically that's a source of comfort. And we, we must realize, though, that God not only has promises of welcome, 
Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Marissa's favorite verse, one that she shared with us multiple times. Uh, he who calls upon me shall be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. So those are, those are welcome promises, but there's also warning promises. We love the welcome promises because we want all the blessing God has for us, but we, we kind of shun the warning promises. And maybe it is in this day that preachers need to get in their pulpits and instead of speaking to the specific injustice that we see in the world right now, and there is, instead speak the the, the more wide warning that if we are not right with God, the destruction that we see in the world is nothing compared to the destruction that God is going to bring upon us. So, so that's, that's more of our thought today. Let's look at our timeline one more time. If you're here last week, or especially on Wednesday, I adjusted this a little bit. This is the history that we've been looking at, and the stars represent where Jer- Jeremiah's prophecies fit in the history. Remember that Jeremiah is not a book that goes right in order. We have to insert them in the different history. Now the first, second, third waves there in 605, 597, and 586 are all uh, describing Nebuchadnezzar's invasion, Babylon's invasion of Judah. It was pretty bad the first time, got a lot worse the second time, and the third time utterly destroyed the nation. But meanwhile, Jeremiah is giving messages to the people during that time. The red star was, hey, God is still hopeful for your repentance. They didn't, and that first wave of destruction came. Then in the blue star, which are the four passages we looked at, and there's others, but these are the four we've looked at, Jeremiah's complaining, God is the only true God, and then the Wednesday passages we looked at in Jeremiah 13 and Jeremiah 15. We want to add one of those in just a minute, but that, that kind of gives you a history. So we are still between that first and second wave, and God still has one more message for these people. Let's, let's think of this key thought as we think about God always keeping his word, and we've talked about this last week and on Wednesday as well, that God is the author of history. In fact, that's the title of the message. God is the author of history. He is writing history's story. And there is nothing in this world or in the spiritual world that can stop him from fulfilling what he wants to do. There is no action of men or action of Satan that can somehow thwart God's plans. Here's some verses for you to meditate upon when we think about that. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Thwarted is one of the most fun words to say. It just is a hard word to say. But God, God's plans cannot be messed up because the Lord has purposed, Isaiah 14, 27. Who is going to annul it? When your hand is stretched out, who will turn it back? Who is going to stop God from doing anything? And then Isaiah 46.10, he declares the end from the beginning. In other words, God at the beginning of all time and even before time declared what the end would look like and how he would bring it about, saying, the very words of God, my counsel shall stand and I will, I bolded that in in red, I will uh, accomplish all my purpose. So I want to think about that phrase, I will. When we say the word, I will, there's a, there is a hopefulness of that activity taking place, but there's not a certainty. Tomorrow, uh, since Max's girlfriend Rachel is coming to visit, I will straighten up the garage. I will wash the car. I make these statements. But something might intervene and keep me from accomplishing my plans. Everyone can understand that, right? That's why James 4 says, if we don't say, tomorrow I'm going to go buy grain and go in this and buy and sell. Instead, when you say you're going to do something, you should say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Because my plans may be interrupted. God's plan cannot be interrupted. When he says, I will, there's a certainty in it. Look at these verses and thank God for the certainty. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a certain promise. And if God says that, he will fulfill it. John 14.3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. He doesn't say I, but he says, and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus' promise of a return to the earth and a rescue of his people and a, and a uniting of his people in heaven is a certainty. Praise God for that. Then in Isaiah 41.10, he uses it three times. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen, help, and uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
Okay? So in the world that is very uncertain, it's like teetering on these tectonic plates, right? The world just looks like it's going to collapse. The United States entering some sort of civil war. I mean, it just feels that way. It just feels so discouraging and depressing. And instead of observing those things and wondering what should, we should do, let's observe the Scripture and see what God has said He will do. He will do these things and there is a certainty about them. What's fascinating is... Uh, Remember when Satan rebelled against the Lord? You remember what his statements were to the Lord? When he in heaven pre, uh, pre-fall, before he had rebelled, he was Lucifer, the beautiful angel. And what did he say to God five times? Remember, what did he say? I will. I will ascend. I don't, I don't remember them all at, the, at, the, at this present time, but I will ascend and I will take that throne and I will. He says it five times. And God's like, not a chance. Everybody else's I will. Now, Satan would be the most powerful created being there is. Of course, he doesn't surpass the uncreated power of God. But, but Satan would be the most powerful created being, and even his I will is immediately shot down. But what God says he will do will always be brought about. So we can be confident in God's sovereign will. Now, I'm going to use that to kind of frame our discussion And here's here's going to be our outline if you want to take notes. There's going to be three I wills that God promises. And then in between those I wills, we're going to have a little history lesson between those so we can see exactly what God is doing. And there's going to be some powerful application for us as we keep moving along. Okay, so let's set our, let's, before we get to the first I will, let's set uh, our historical context. Uh, We were counting down the final five kings of Judah He had Josiah, godly king, and then he was uh, killed by archers in battle. And then you had Jehoahaz, who was just a three-month king, and he's gone. He was number four. And now you have Jehoiakim, uh, and he is reigning between the two waves. And Jeremiah's blue star there indicates that Jeremiah 25 is going to be presented. And here's the first I will that God promises. He says, I will punish. So we're in Jeremiah 25. Let's finally read a little bit of that passage. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 25. Let me get there. I wasn't there just yet. Um, And then I'll talk about what's on the screen and we'll make some application for us. Remember, when God says he will do it, he will do it. So finally, after giving them all these opportunities to repent, in in Jeremiah 25 verse 1, uh, God's, uh, God's destruction is promised. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Don't go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the working hands, and I will do you no harm. But you have not listened to me declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, check it out, my servant, God's going to use this guy as a pawn in his story, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, against all the surrounding nations, and I will, notice all the I wills, I will devote, and we'll come to that in a minute, Verse 12, after 70 years of exile is completed, I'm going to punish him. You see, what, you see what God is saying? The punishment is certain. I want to point out, you don't have to look at these, but in chapter 36 and chapter 26 of Jeremiah, both in verse 3, God promises restoration if the people would repent. He says in both 26.3 and 36.3, which come, think about it, remember they're not in order, so you think Jeremiah 36 is way after Jeremiah 25, but it's actually before. It says, if you, if you, my people, would listen to the prophets, I would relent and the punishment would not come. But it, as we read chapter 25, what was the major indictment that Jeremiah was saying? You have not what? Starts with an L. 
You have not listened at all. You have not listened to the word and obeyed. And because of that, there is going to be punishment. Let, let us look at Jeremiah 36, because there's a fascinating story here that indicates the rebellion of the king, which is symbolic of the re- rebellion of all the people. Jeremiah was banned from even coming in to see King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim didn't even let him come into the court, so Jeremiah wrote down on a scroll the, the message that God had for the king and the people. And he gave it to a guy, I think his name was Baruch, maybe a distant relative of ours, and he took it in and read it to the king. And look, let's look how the king reacts. Okay, Remember God is saying, you have not listened, you have not listened, you have not listened. Here's one more chance. And he could spare his destruction of his people. Look at, I'll, I'll skip through a few verses so you can see the story. Verse 4, Jeremiah called Baruch, and Baruch wrote on a scroll all the words of the Lord. Verse 5, Jeremiah said, I am banned, so you go in and read the words. I'm not reading all the words, but I'm watching you through it. Verse 7, it may be that they will repent. You can see that. They might plead for mercy and come before the Lord. Maybe this will still happen. There's still hope. Now skip down to uh, verse number 20. They went to the court and they put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and reported all the words to the king. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary. Jehudi read it to the king. Okay, so the scroll is being read. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in a winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. Maybe you've never heard this story before. This is really, really fascinating. Jehudi read three or four columns. This is verse 23. Look, Jehudi read three or four columns. The king would cut them off with a knife and throw them in the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. In other words, here's what I think of your message, Jeremiah. Cuts up the scroll, burns it. Cuts up the scroll, burns it. Is that indicative of what our society is doing with the word of God or what? I mean, it's not that they're doing this, but they don't want, they don't want to hear that message. They don't want to hear, they, they want to hear the welcome promises. Oh, Jesus is, God is a God of love and wants to receive. They want to hear that, but they don't want to hear the warning. Listen, you've got to listen to what God says, obey it, or else destruction is coming. The king is representative. He, you almost get the image of him kind of sitting back on his throne like, yeah, 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 throwing it into the fire. But he's representing, representative of all the people. And so God then says there is punishment. Now, this, la- this last line would be something that is of a great application to us. You know, how, what does this have to do with us? I'm here in church, Andy. I'm listening to the message. Just because you hear doesn't mean you're listening. Okay? We can he- how do we know if someone has listened? They, they are doing then what they, were st- what they were told. So don't confuse just being in church and hearing the message or listening to a sermon to actually obeying it. And I, this, is, this is an application for all of us, and we see it in our nation, but let it not be true of us. We place ourselves in great danger when we refuse to receive and to respond to the Word of God. You know what we forfeit when we forfeit the Word of God? We forfeit the peace, direction, light, and comfort that God's Word gives us. And in fact, we're actually rejecting the way that God has set aside as the means to make Him like himself. Ephesians 5.26 says he is washing us with the water of the word. You probably cannot remember every sermon that I've ever, ever preached. You probably can't remember a handful, maybe a couple in your whole life that have been very memorable. But it's the, it's the consistent washing of the word. I've told you this before, my preaching uh, professor at Moody years and years ago said, preaching is like putting water through a strainer. You don't collect much, but it cleanses as it goes through. Isn't that good? You, you, you don't, I say, hey, what did I preach on three months ago? You know, I don't even remember. But it's that consistent, you're hearing it, you're being washed by it and cleansed by it. So when you reject it, you're rejecting the very way that God says, this is how you become cleansed and like me. And, and ultimately, it could lead to our destruction. We reject God's blessing through his son, Jesus. 
So back in Jeremiah 25, again, we're, we're still looking at the punishment. God indicts the people with this very charge that you are not listening to my word. And so his first I wills begin. And I'm, I'm summarizing them with I will punish. Look at verse 9. Some of these I wills start. And remember, his I wills are different than our I wills. His I wills uh, come with a certainty of action. They will occur. Verse 9, I will send. I'm going to send for Nebuchadnezzar. And I will bring him. This is verse 9 as well. I will bring him against the land. Also in verse 9, I will devote you to destruction. And verse 10, I will banish joy and gladness from you. Verse 11, this whole land shall, that's just another word for will, right? This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and you will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. According to verse 11, as I just read, this 70 years will occur and then God will bring them out of Babylon and then will punish Babylon for punishing his people. See, God is going to do whatever he's going to do and nothing will stop him. And the point that we must accept is Punishment may come to us if we continue to refuse and reject his word. You don't have to look at it, but let me read for you from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The end of the Sermon on the Mount is a scary passage for Christians to read because it can bring a great amount of conviction. Uh, In verse number uh, 34, uh, excuse me, verse 24, we have this cute little story that's taught at VBS or in children's church, but it, but it, it, it packs a mighty wallop to us. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on a rock. And, another group of people, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the Sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. Here's the phrase, and great was the fall of it. That can be true for nations. That can be true for nations. Maybe we're seeing that. We completely disregard God, and his word is not honored, and in fact, it's rejected. We see a nation crumble. But more importantly, it can be true of individuals. A lot of people will say, well, this means when storms come into our life, when we have difficulties and trouble, when we lose a job, when we get a cancer diagnosis, or when we have a death in the family, or a real struggle, when those storms come into our life, we will remain firm because we have obeyed Christ. I don't think that's the main point of that passage. It's talking about the end judgment that's coming. When Christ returns and separates the sheep from the goats and decides, hey, you know, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? No, no, no. Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You who have not listened to my word. The great was the fall of it is not describing some event in this life that's going to happen to us. The great was the fall of it phrase is that person who lives their life in in abject rejection to the word of God, that person ends up devoting their own selves to destruction and great will be the fall of their very souls. Whereas, people who have committed themselves to Christ and have proven they've listened to his words by living a life of obedience, keep in mind it is not living a life of obedience that earns us salvation, but it proves our salvation is real. They come to the end of their lives, and they're standing firm in the day of judgment. Great was the fall of it. That is a a huge warning to us. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 24. All right, 2 Kings chapter 24. Let's, uh, let's go to historical interlude number one. We're going to have two of these. Just give us a, okay, so how are the people going to react now in 2 Kings chapter 24? So we'll go back and forth between 2 Kings and Jeremiah. 2 Kings chapter 24. Uh, again, now we're, to, now we're to king number two. We're working our way down. So here's the tragically sad passage where I just said, okay, the first I will, make sure you're with me. God says, I will what? Starts with a P? I will punish the people. 2 Kings 24 shows us exactly what that punishment looks like. 
Verse number eight, this is when Jehoiachin is the king. It's real hard to, let me just give you a little bit of information that's kind of off the radar and not part of my sermon. But Jehoiachin is also known as Jeconiah. Jeconiah is known as Coniah in the Bible. Jeconiah, this king, is cursed. And God says to Jeconiah that none of his descendants will be a king. Now that presents a problem because the Lord Jesus Christ needs to come from this line. But God is going to rearrange that by having Jesus come from the line of Mary, not Joseph. Joseph would be a descendant of these folks. It's pretty incredible. But Jehoiachin is the king. He only reigns for three months and then he's a goner. He's 18 years old. The Nebuchadnezzar takes him and his mother back to Babylon. We don't hear from them. Here's, here's what it says. So verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old. Imagine that. And his mother there. Verse, verse 9 is the description. He did what was evil. So in verse 10, here is the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 25. I said I would do it. I said I would bring Nebuchadnezzar. I said I would bring the tribes from the north. I said they would come down and get you. Here they come. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king, gave himself up, both he and his mother and his servants and the officials and the palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner uh, in the eighth year of his reign and carried off this is sad, carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made. He carried away Jerusalem and all the officials and the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen, all the smiths. Nobody remained except the poorest people in the land. He carried away Jehoiachin and his mother and the officials and the chief men, verse 16, and he brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And he made this guy, the last king, Zedekiah the king. Uh, his name was uh, Mataniah, but the king changed his name to Zedekiah, and he became king. Second Kings 24, verses 10 to 17, is the fulfillment of the I will punish. And uh, God brings destruction on things, and God brings destruction on people. Imagine seeing the vessels of the temple cut up and taken away. Imagine seeing all the mighty men of, the, of, of valor taken away, all the skilled craftsmen taken away, all the skilled smiths taken away, and the only people that are left are the poor people. How is that land going to succeed? Remember, this is just the second wave. It's going to get worse when the third wave comes. Zedekiah is made king. Uh, he is going to be the last king of Judah. And rem- I mean, this is just a picture of all that God has said. Great was the fall of it. Uh, back to Matthew chapter 7. So, let's look at our next I will then. Here we are with the green star. The second wave has happened. God has another message, and it's in Jeremiah 24, and it's I will bless. So here's our second point. I will bless. Look at Jeremiah chapter 24. First, God says, I will punish. Does he do it? 100%. He brings it on him. Now he's got one more message, at least between these waves, I will bless. And Jeremiah has a vision. We're going to go through this very quickly because I want to get to the last part. Jeremiah has a vision of good figs and bad figs. Okay? He sees two baskets of figs. And we put it in history because it says in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile Jehoiah, or Jeconiah. I told you the <clears throat> same name as Jehoiachin. He took him into exile, the son of Jehoiakim, with all the craftsmen, all the medical workers, just what, med- medical workers, all the metal workers. And uh, that's just as was described in 2 Kings. So here's the vision he sees. One basket has very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very, very bad figs, so bad that, that they could not be eaten. The Lord says, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs. Good figs, very good. Bad figs, very bad. That's what he sees. So they're going to represent the people. Now we have two groups of people. We have people taken away to Babylon, and we have people who are left in Jerusalem or in Judah. Which would you imagine, you don't have to say out loud, but which would you imagine will be representative of the good figs? We would think that the good figs would be the people that are left behind, and the bad figs are representative of the people that have gone off into Babylon. But that's not what it is. It's the exact opposite. The good figs are symbolic of all the people that have been taken captive, the bad figs are all the people who have left behind. What God is saying to Jeremiah, and you can read the rest of this chapter later, I told you I wanted to skim over this, but what God is saying to Jeremiah is the exiles are actually going to be a blessed people. Would you say 
that those exiles that have been taken away to Babylon are facing discipline for their disregard of the message of God? Would you say that they are under discipline, that they are being punished for their disregard, they're not listening to God? Yes or no? Yes, they are being punished. So what we're learning here, and, and well, before we do that, uh, I'll explain what we're learning in just a minute, but those who are in Judah are missing out on the discipline. They are not being disciplined. But the people who are in exile are. Here's what he says about them. Here's some of the I wills. Okay, here's the I will bless these people. In verse number 5, so let's read this. Thus says the Lord God, like those good figs, I will regard as good the exiles whom I've sent away. Verse number 6, I will set my eyes on them. God is promising, I've not abandoned those people. I've got my eye fixed on those exiles. I'm watching their every move. Same thing in verse 6, I will bring them back. I will build them up. I will plant them. We've got a lot of I wills here, don't we? I will give, this is in verse number 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and I will be their people and, uh, and, and uh, I will be their God. They shall be my people and I will be their God rather. Now, all of these I wills, Let's just think about it with me for a minute. I, know, I don't want to be too deep. I want to be applicational here and have you understand. All of these I wills come after what? Starts with a D. After, after the what? After the discipline. All those things happen after the discipline. The people, especially the give, I will give them a new heart. There's going to be a new relationship here. And it's going to come about as a result of judgment. And the people who are avoiding the discipline, they're not going to get the blessing. So what we learn here is this, is that the only way that our hearts, sometimes the only way that our hearts are renewed and our, and our, uh, and, and our, our uh, relationship to God is strengthened and blessing comes is that God puts us through this period of discipline. And a lot of times, people reject that discipline. Uh, this is, growth happens through discipline. And sometimes God needs to bring that on, on a people and on an individual in order to get them to the point where he wants to get them afterwards. So after 70 years of that discipline, he's going to restore those people knowing that it, this discipline has led to their good. More of this blessing is recorded for us in Jeremiah 29. I'd like you to look at that real quick. And uh, I told you I wanted to look at this quickly. <coughs> here's, here's a couple of main things we're learning already. Let's not neglect the voice of God when we hear it. We do so to our own peril. If we do, we may face discipline, but God uses that discipline to chasten us and restore us. So let's not avoid that discipline. Sometimes when we... When we are receiving discipline, we like to escape from that. And, and we shouldn't do that because that discipline can strengthen our faith. So in Jeremiah 29, I'll just glance at some of these verses. In verse number 4 and 5, God gives some instructions to the exiles. Hey, go ahead and build some homes. <laughs> They're up in Babylon now, right? Build houses, plant gardens, eat the fruit. Verse 6, get married, have kids. Verse 7, uh, seek the welfare of that city, do good in that land. You know... What would motivate these exiles to do this? Right? Imagine a country comes in and takes some of us away, and we're, we're carried off to you know, Lebanon or Paraguay or some faraway place, and we're instructed to thrive there, hey, build stuff, seek the welfare of that city. What would motivate us to do that? What motivated the people was the promise of God's future deliverance. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 14, are some of the most misinterpreted verses in all of the Bible, and you'll be familiar with them. Look at it. Why should you do this? Right. Why should you seek the welfare? Why should you build things, get married, have kids? Verse 10, 4, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Again, look at the I wills. I will fulfill you, my promise to you, and bring you back to this place. And here's the verses that you are real familiar with. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
And you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You know, we like verses 11 to 14, especially at graduation time. Hey, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. That's not a promise to you specifically. It's a promise to these people. And God is saying to them that his thoughts and his plans and his will for his people will be carried out. The encouragement in this would not be from knowing what the plans are, but from knowing the God who knows the plans. Now this promise is not for you. Does God have plans for welfare for me? Is God's plans for me a hope and a future? Is it? I mean, eventually, but this specific promise isn't for me. But here's the application for us. What motivates us in the present, in this fallen kingdom, like we're seeing in society, what motivates us to continue to build houses, live in this city, salt and light, all that sort of thing? What motivates us is the future guarantees that God gives. The assurance we have in the present is trusting what God has said would happen in the future. Okay, How many of you even thought this week, oh, the Lord needs to come? Right? Or thought, what, you know, this world, I mean, if we didn't know that God was sovereign and in control and bringing, bringing things about for his own glory and purposes, we could be really worried and concerned. But the future is guaranteed. And so the assurance of living for God in the present is motivated by the guarantee in the future. All God's promises are always future. John 14, 1-6. Do not let your heart be troubled. Right? You believe in God, believe in me. I go to prepare a place for you. I mean, in my Father's house are many mansions. If this were not so, I wouldn't have told you. And if I go, I will come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. Oh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The promise of heaven and his presence and his return, that motivates you to continue to be faithful now. That's what God is saying to these exiles. I know you're going away for a period of time. You're going to come under my discipline. That's meant to restore and renew your hearts and and. As you're living there, involve yourself in the city, live your lives, thrive there, and and you can do that on the basis of my future promise of hope and welfare and bringing you back, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Same thing true for us. We can make it through the difficulties of this present time because of what God has promised in the future. God does not promise to alleviate the struggles of this life. Here's what he promises to do. He is going to replace this fake kingdom with a real one. This is so transient and temporary. And the rulers of this world and the powerful players that we see on TV are nothing. Isaiah 40, he brings the princes of the earth to nothing. It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Oh, the, the, the protesters, the, the news media, the president, the God, all these people. Nothing. They're nothing. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The Lord sits in the heaven and laughs. He will have them all in derision. So God does not promise to make our lives better, but he eventually is going to replace this fake kingdom with the real one, and the only way you enter or are guaranteed entrance into that kingdom is to be born again. John 3.3, 3, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. I love that. I love that when Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I'd fight you. If this world was worth fighting for, I would, I would do all I could to stay alive. But my kingdom is of another world. I, I love that. That is precious and sweet. Our present pain and affliction does not rule out future blessing, even if it might come in the next life. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 37. Let's do historical interlude number two. Is that encouraging to you? Hope so. Hope so. We're to, we're to Zedekiah. Remember the last king. He's going to rule for 11 years, so we have a little period of time here. 
He's given a warning and again will not listen. So here we have the promise that we see in Jeremiah 33, which again is coming between the second and third waves, that green star there, if you can follow that. Look at Jeremiah 37. It's, it's like Josiah died, the good king, and the, other, the last four kings, all of them had the same thing in common. They didn't want to listen to God's word. Verse, 37, or verse 1 of 37, Zedekiah, then verse 2, this is talking about Zedekiah, but neither he, that is Zedekiah, nor his servants, nor the people of the land listened. Same indictment, right? See, see that? Same indictment. Look at verse 17. This is, this is actually kind of funny. Some of these, you know, Jeremiah is actually uh, imprisoned, and then he's brought out because Zedekiah is concerned. We're skipping a little bit of the history, but just to give you a, a little bit of context. So King Jeremiah, verse 16, had come to the dungeon and remained there many days. Zedekiah sent for him and received him. Zedekiah, the king questioned him secretly in his house, almost like he didn't want to know he was inquiring of this prophet. Is there any word from the Lord? And, and our hearts kind of get a little jumpy here and say, maybe he's finally going to, maybe he's finally going to listen. Maybe he's seen the end. He's like, Jeremiah, give us a word. Jeremiah says, there is. Then he said, you will be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. <laughs> I, I just find that funny. You, your, your chances are over. He brings him in. Is there any word from the Lord? Yep, you're going to, you're going to go to Babylon. And Zedekiah says, well, you're going to go in the cistern. So he grabs Jeremiah and puts him in the, in the pit. This is in verse 38, or chapter 38 of verse number Six. 38, six. This is the this is the after after Jeremiah gives him this word. They took Jeremiah and cast him in the cistern where there is no water, only mud, and Jeremiah is in the mud. You know, this was meant to be a series on Ezra, but as we're introducing it, we're talking a lot about Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a hard luck preacher, isn't he? And there is uh, there is great discouragement in ministry. A lot of ministry is very, very hard. You know, we may be very, we may be unfairly treated. Uh, people may speak words against us or about us. And probably the most discouraging is is when people don't listen. When people don't listen to the message. And Jeremiah's ministry was marked by consistency of not listening to God. And just coincidentally, and I know it's not coincidentally, it's God bringing this to my attention, I was reading in a book just randomly, and I didn't write it down, so I'll have to summarize what I read, but it, it talked about a minister's, uh, and we've said this before, but it's, it was an encouragement to me, that a minister is not called to be successful, but faithful. If we looked at Jeremiah, we'd say, this guy stinks as a preacher. From a worldly perspective, right? Because nobody... Listen to what he said. Where's the great revival? Where's the great turning around of people to the Lord? Boy, this guy must really be a bad preacher. But no preacher can open blind eyes to truth. No preacher can turn uh, a stony heart into one that will receive God's word. A preacher can teach, but he can't make people learn or listen. And that is a real encouragement to me. We cannot open the ears of the hardened heart. But the encouragement is to stay faithful, even when others don't heed the message. That's my lesson from Jeremiah. He had warned four kings, and few, if any, even in the nation, had responded. Now, I had you turn to Jer didn't I have you turn to Jeremiah 33? Or that's the that's the one we're going to go to the last the last I will. We have had I will bless or I will punish and I will bless. And the third is I will raise up. I will raise up. Now, if you want to compare, you don't have to turn to Jeremiah 23, but Jeremiah 23 is almost exactly the same as Jeremiah 33. So we're going to look at 33, specifically verses 14 to 16. Okay? Now think about what's happening to the people. They've already been hit with two waves of Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to be hit with a third wave. 
uh, it's inevitable. They're going to go away for 70 years. The people are going to be punished. Then they're going to be returned and be blessed. But what ideally would these people most want? What would they really, really desire? Ever since Josiah died, they have not had a leader that's followed God. They say, man, when we go back, what is going to keep us from entering that same position again? Here's God's promise. Verse 14. This, let this be precious because we're just going to spend a minute on it and be done. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise. This is what we've talked about all day. God will do his word. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he has made a lot of promises, but the one he's specifically talking about here is the messianic promises. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, capital B, which is talking about, this is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ promised, to spring up for David, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. This is the ultimate I will. I will raise up, and I didn't, have it, I didn't put it all in, but it's I will raise up a branch or I will send the Messiah, whatever is more instructive and helpful for you. What God is promising here is an ideal king. The ideal king, what, what would mark the ideal king? He would do what? All the other kings weren't doing what? Starts with an L. All the other kings weren't listening. This king will, he will not only listen, but he will do everything and he will lead in righteousness. Now what this is talking about, I personally believe this is talking about the millennial kingdom. When that branch comes and actually rules as the king in Israel. And people are going to be like, finally, we have a righteous leader here. Speaking of the millennial reign. He will provide peace and godly leadership. But there is a further application. Okay, so first, uh, oh, we already, you already had that up there. He's a righteous branch and he is the, um, the Lord is our righteousness. He will be the ideal king. Here's the application. Look at verse number 16. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Here's the application for us and we'll be done. How often in the course of the last two weeks of study when I've been thinking about all these people who would not listen to God, how often I have seen my own rebellion and unwillingness to do what God has said. Again, it's very, very easy to point at the world or society or culture or even other people and say, boy, they really need to get their act together. And what I see in my life is a record a consistent record of failure. Do you see that in your life? A consistent record of disobedience to God. I think about the last 25, 30 years of my life, a Christian, but almost like constant failing. Overwhelmed by temptation and sin. And so then I imagine... How in the world can I stand before a holy God and say, God, here's my record, here's my achievements, here's my merit, what do you think of this? <laughs> and all my righteousness, Isaiah 64, appears as filthy rags. If I stood before God on the basis of my own achievements, I would be forever cursed. But like that, familiar song says, my only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. To be able to say, the Lord is my righteousness, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, when he says, I used to try to earn my way into favor with God. I was a tribe of the Benjamite. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was, according to the law, I was blameless. I persecuted the church of God. But now I do not want to stand before him found in my own righteousness, but I want to be found in his righteousness which he grants to us on the basis of faith and repentance. And he becomes my righteousness so I may live in that eternal kingdom with him as my righteous king and me wearing his robe of righteousness. 
And all the things that the world can throw at us regarding the things we've seen this week mean nothing in comparison to that kingdom. I can count on that truth because of one simple thing. Okay? I can count on all that I just shared that I will live eternally in the kingdom of God because of Christ's gift of His righteousness, because I have trusted Him and repented of my sins. I continue to fail, but, I'm, but I've repented of my sins. I can bank on all of that hope because God always keeps His word. And He has said, He has said, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So today, let's reflect and rely on the promises of God because a tough present does not negate a terrific future. God's plans are sure. Father, we bow our heads to pray as we close, thanking you for your faithful and sure word. And thank you for your promises which are certain and true. Thank you, God, for the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for the blessing of being rightly related to him by faith. Help us to learn from the disobedient nation of Judah, which refused to listen over and over again, and let our hearts be wide open to your word, to listen and to do it. When we come to Ezra, that's something that he is marked by. He wanted to learn your statutes and do them. Help us to desire that same thing. When we look at a, at a fallen and difficult world, let us, instead of turning on the news, rely and reflect upon your promises. How we thank you for the joy of gathering together this morning. We pray your blessing on us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. Our service is over. Uh, remember that we meet Wednesday night at 7. We'll probably continue. I have more to say on this um, on Wednesday night. Uh, if you have offering, you can just leave them in a plate. Uh, the Lord's been good to us. Uh, I hope you're encouraged by the message today. Um, we're going to continue this schedule through the month of June, morning service and Wednesday night. And in July, we're probably going to advance into the next stage, maybe getting back to Sunday school, Sunday night service, kind of back to normal. Um, so we look forward to that. I hope you have a great afternoon. God bless. We'll see you on Wednesday night. All right.